On June the 9th, 2003, Mrs. Patricia Doolan Kennedy, resident of Western Sydney, was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for her services to people with HIV and AIDS in Sydney and Western Sydney. An unassuming, straight-talking grandmother of two, Patricia's story is one of strength, virtue, courage and unyielding compassion in the face of suffering and despair. Born and raised in Scotland, she was one of the last immigrants to take the boat to Australia rather than fly. Previously, she worked with disabled children in the Scottish school system, but saw Australia as a place of immense opportunity. Australia in the 1980s and early 1990s was waking up to the harsh reality of HIV and AIDS. The government's response was swift, and a variety of successful public health programs were implemented. Most notable was the now infamous television commercial featuring the Grim Reaper, Tenpin Bowling. At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. That imagery would haunt the up until now naive and uninformed general public. Consequently, HIV and AIDS became the social leprosy of the time. In the decades that followed, many medical advances meant that AIDS was no longer the automatic death sentence it once was, and the high-profile government health and media coverage it once commanded began to markedly taper off. And there is still no cure. Yet HIV and its life-changing consequences still sits under the radar for the majority of young Australians today. Those born after the mid-1990s might not appreciate the staggering personal struggles that occurred in the late 1980s. This was a time before mass internet access and as such remains largely undocumented. One of these stories is the story of Patricia. Our straight-talking grandmother's role in the Australian story of HIV and AIDS begins in the early 1980s when the world was confronted with this new, incurable disease and its terrifying stigma. Well, in the early 80s, 81, I had five units of blood at the Nepean Hospital. And for quite a few years after that, I was still quite unwell. And I started to pick up on this strange disease from America. And then it hit Australia that there was talk of this and I read in a newspaper about these guys who were in the corridors at St Vincent's Hospital that were dying in the corridors because they couldn't get them into beds and and there was all this panic and I thought now I could have that and of course at that time they were saying no 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 it wasn't through transfusion or anything else it wasn't till 84 it really got strong that the, the blood bank was having a say. Well, we're looking into this. And I decided uh, I would try and find out about myself. And I went to the doctor and he, he felt my glands and says, you can't have it because you, have, you don't have swollen glands. 
And I said to him, well, look, I think I know a bit more about this than you do, than what I've read. I want to get tested. And he said, oh, you can't get tested. It costs a fortune. Far too much. You've not got it. So um, I phoned up Parramatta. There was no Westmead Hospital then. Parramatta was the hospital. And I phoned to ask, and they put me through to the STD clinic. And I said, I'd like to come down and get tested for this disease. They didn't call it HIV then. It was initials and bread and all sorts of things. And she said, oh, yeah, come down. We do that. So I headed down to Parramatta. And when I got there, she said, look, I'm sorry, we can't test you because you have to be gay, a drug user, or a prostitute before we can test you. And I said, well, I come down for St Mary's. I stopped off at Pine Grove, picked up this guy, and I gave him sex and exchanged for some drugs. So does that qualify? And I've left my, sis- my girlfriend at home cooking dinner. <laughs> and the, she said, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that, but you can go to, down to casualty. So I went to casualty, and the nurse came up and she said, what can I do for you? What's wrong? And I said, well, I want to get tested for this virus. And she jumped back about a mile, and she said, oh, no, we don't do that. And I said, yes, you do. You go and talk to the doctor. So I did get tested, and they said, well, you your results will take two or three weeks. So I had read in one of the magazines by this time that they were before they gave you your results, you had to see a counsellor because people were getting the results and they were suiciding if they were positive. So I waited a couple of weeks and I phoned to see if the results was in and the girl says to me, well, you'll be pleased to know you're not pregnant. And I said, well, I'm not surprised considering I had a hysterectomy. And she said, oh, sometimes. And they couldn't find the results. So I went to Albion Street. And that's when they said, what you want tested for? I said, everything. Give me the whole lot. And that's when I decided, what if I had had it? So that's when I decided I'd like to get involved in it. And I actually phoned up St Vincent's thinking, how naive can you be, that I could maybe go and wash pyjamas for these people that were dying in corridors and stuff like that. And she said that there had been a a group of young gay men that had started an organisation there to care for people at home. And she gave me the name of this young man, so I phoned up and he arranged to meet me at Parramatta. And I went there and waited and it was pouring rain and he didn't turn up. And to my knowledge, I didn't know any gay person. And I thought, I wonder if that's what gays are like. He didn't turn up. But when I got home, he'd left a message to say his car had broken down at Homebush and could he make another date? And he did. And that's when I got involved. I joined this group. Um, uh, There was only one other straight person that was involved in it at that time, another woman. 
bit like me, um, I had given up my regular job because my grandson spent a lot of time in hospital then, my oldest grandson. And um, my husband had a contract cleaning business at night. So I left so that him and I could spend some time with the youngest grandson or to spell my daughter in the hospital. And so I was able to give a lot of time as a carer. And this other lady who had a family, she'd had a big family, they'd all grown up, they'd all moved away. So we were able to cover a lot of shifts. And that was my involvement. Patricia tested negative to the HIV virus and could have easily been satisfied to put that painful experience behind her. Instead, Patricia felt compelled by what she saw happening around her to take a stand when it seemed that nobody else was. This was the beginning of her journey to fight against the crippling stigma and discrimination surrounding HIV and AIDS. Over time, Pat Kennedy became known as a formidable carer, an advocate for people diagnosed with HIV or AIDS regardless of gender, race, religion, sexuality or culture. What were her motivations for getting involved? Well, simply because I felt it was something that needed to be done. It didn't matter who had it. And when the, the stuff that was coming out in papers and magazines then, it was obvious it wasn't a gay disease. Worldwide, it was a, and still is just a heterosexual thing. It was just unfortunately the, the first people that were diagnosed, the bulk of them in Australia, were gay. And it didn't matter. You know, sexuality didn't come into it. It was a case that people were paranoid about it and they were help needed. And as far as I was concerned, they would have been the people, that group that I ended up joining. If I had been in, infected with this, they would have been the ones that were caring for me because the straight community wouldn't have done it. And ironically, some of the first people that we cared for were actually heterosexual. You know, it had nothing to do with the fact that the majority were gay and the majority were young. And what hit me with the whole thing was I spent so many shifts with someone that was dying, that was a young person, and there would be another volunteer with me and it could be a young 21, 22-year-old gay man who had the virus, who knew he had on, was on very limited time, was already unwell, and they were giving the time to care for someone else. And to me, that took guts, a hell of a lot of guts. Volunteer carers for people suffering with HIV or AIDS formed donation-funded networks to try and address an expanding need for their services. But the problem of distance and scarce resources meant that all services focused on the city of Sydney. The suburbs were totally neglected. Pat recounts the early days of one such community network in the city. Well, it was called CSN, and it was a group of young gay men who, a lot of them, had the virus themselves and decided that they needed to, to do this. There, there was a, a young American 
who died in St Vincent's Hospital. And one of the ministers then, Jim Dykes, actually he got a group together to help care for this young man. And uh, when he died, they went from to others. They realised that there was a whole lot. So half of them went as an organisation, that's actually the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation, to raise funds for to support the people that were sick. Um, at the beginning, there wasn't community nurses on, on board or anything else. All that was very slow and coming. And the, um, and the other half became Community Support Network and they actually did in-home care. You moved in and a shift could be anything for four hours to 24 hours. You could do an overnight if someone was really sick. And it was rather uh, ironic because the other lady and myself, being two the older straight, straight women, um, everybody was so grateful to us. And as I say, the sad thing was, to me, it was nothing to us. We had the time, we had raised kids, so we were used to it. And I had worked with disabilities in Scotland. Um, she'd raised a big family. Uh, what you struck me again and again was these young men who, as I say, were facing death themselves. And they'd be there on these shifts. We'd done a lot of crying. We'd done a lot of laughing too, you know, because it got that you get a sick sense of humour. Some situations that people would have thought, oh, that's horrific, we'd be rolling about laughing at it. And it was just, I suppose, a bit of hysteria. But these young men were, were absolutely fantastic. And that's what helped me keep, keep going, actually, was them. I can remember one time I went to this young man. He was a young Aboriginal man and his partner had to work and he was dying. And he actually came out of the hospital to die at home. And he had lost his sight. And when I got there, his partner left for work and he had said to me before he left, I've put a washing in, I've got a washing there, could you do the washing for me? And I said, yes. And he said, and if you need gloves or pads or anything, they're in the next room on top of the wardrobe. So he went off to work. He'd only no sooner gone, and the other women had done the night shift, the other straight women had done the night shift before me, and she said, oh, you're okay, because this young man had massive diarrhoea but he only had it every second day. And she said, you're in luck. He had it during the night. You're okay. So when I was told where the pads and everything were and the blue sheets, I thought, oh, I'm fine, I'll get them later. And um, his partner was only gone five minutes. And he, um, I could hear this gurgling and he had massive diarrhoea and here's me trying to clean up. And he was wonderful. He was really great. He's giving me directions. He's telling me what to do. Once I got everything cleaned up, he settled down and I went to do the washing. It's part of my shift. 
And when I went to put it out, here was the man, all his business shirts, and he had a pink shirt, and I had put it in the wash, and all the white shirts were pink. And I was in a panic, and I phoned the office, and I'm nearly in tears. And, of course, the guy that answered the phone is a gay guy as well. And he says to me, what's your problem? And I said, look, I've dyed all his shirts, all his lovely white shirts. I've dyed them pink. And he killed himself laughing. And this little voice through the bed said, do the bugger the world did good. He can flaunt his sexuality. <laughs> And and actually, that calmed me more than anything. And this was the partner. So for the rest of the shift, I sat next to him. And while I was sitting there, I got a phone call. Well, he got a phone call. When I answered the phone, it was some aunt. She wanted me to tell him that some cousin had just died. And I said, look, are you sure you want me to tell him that? Because I thought, he's dying. And she said, oh, it's very important. It's part of our culture and he needs to to know. So I gave him the phone and let him talk to his aunt. And when he finished, he said, you know, I should be with my people at this time and we should be thinking of him and, and communicating with him as he's leaving. So I said to him, well, look, I don't know anything about this, but how about I hold your hands and we sit quiet and you communicate when I'm there. And that's what we did. So an hour later, the nurse came because we had got community nurses on just recently and a nurse came to help me to turn them and wash them. And the bed was against the wall and we were frightened that it would roll over and hit the wall. So I got into the other side of the bed and she rolled them over and top of me so that, well, leaning on me so that she could wash his back. And he said to me, this would be a nice way to die with your arms around me, but my reputation would be absolutely ruined <laughs> because I'm gay. I said, I bloody know that, you know. But that was a typical shift at that time. It was common to go on a shift and while you were there, the person you were caring for would die. Prior to mass internet, it is clear that much of the details of events and stories in those early days were likely never documented. How much information does Pat feel has been lost? I think an awful lot has been lost. And I think also, and it still exists, was the feeling then that everybody we eats lived round about Oxford Street. And for the first six or nine months, every shift I'd done, was in the city. And then I found at one stage that I actually got a phone call to see if I could go up to Katoomba and get a man and take him into St Vincent's to the clinic. But by the time I got home and got the message and I rang the office, they said, look, we've arranged for an ambulance to take him. We couldn't wait. It was to be the next day and we didn't know when you would be in. So a couple of days later, I thought, OK, he must have to do that fairly regular. And I phoned in to say, well, let me know the next time. Give me a day or two's notice. And they said, oh, look, the ambulance guy was so paranoid that this man didn't leave St Vincent's. He told them, keep me here. I'll die here. And so I said to the city, 
I will never do another shift in the city. I'll stay out west. And they said, well, you can't do that because if you get someone and you can do a couple of days and then they get really sick, we don't have the volunteers out there to do any more. And I said, well, I had visited Westmead Clinic and it was crowded. There were loads of people there, uh, people with the virus. And I said, look, if, you know, somebody gets a couple of days when they need it, then they might survive an awful lot longer. Well, within a couple of weeks, I had someone for every day 